This is the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm David Craner. It's never been easier to go from idea to digital design to physical product. The new hardware movement is radically changing the way that technology in the world around us is being conceived, built, and connected. This podcast brings you the new generation of hardware creators who work across the boundary between digital and physical. They're designers, engineers, scientists, artists, and business people. For more information on the new hardware movement and the resources you need to become a full-stack hardware creator, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware. And if you'd like to send in a question for us to discuss on the show, email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com. Our guest today on the Hardware Podcast is Ken Shurif, who is an engineer at Google and uh, a prolific writer of, of really cool electronics teardowns. Hi. Well, thank you for inviting me here. I'm glad to be on the show. Yeah, we're really excited. We, 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 we found Ken through you know, reading the internet and blogs and Hackaday and all these things. And, and I think the, the one thing that caught our eye was, was your series of, of articles about the tearing down and comparing the engineering inside of counterfeit Apple chargers versus genuine Apple chargers. And kind of, you know, people always talk about, oh, yeah, this should be way cheaper or, you know, how big of a deal is it? You know, this big scary sticker says don't use unauthorized things. Are they just trying to make more money from, you know, people are people are not sure about what's inside the box. But we really enjoyed your your blog post about what's inside the box and why it's there. Well, well, thank you. I realize it's a bit of an unusual hobby to take apart chargers, <laughs> but there's been a surprising number of people interested in what's inside. Yeah. Um, but, you know, when I started, I had no idea, you know, how they worked inside, and there's a lot more happening in there than you might expect. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, uh, I bet a lot of people who listen to this podcast could draw a rectifier uh, in a diagram on a whiteboard or something. But uh, as you've discovered, it's much lot, more complicated more than, than that. that. Well, given the you know hardware content of your of your podcast, I expect there's a lot of listeners out there who may have like you know hands-on experience with designing chargers. So I, I don't, they may keep me honest here. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people more experienced than I am, but you know I find it interesting to to look at mm. how how they work. Do you think that I don't know? I mean, this isn't meant to be a provocative question, but do you think do you think that Apple over-engineers things? Well, that that's a good question. I would have to say that their engineering is a lot more, they put a lot more into their chargers than most companies. And I'd say some of it is over-engineered. For instance, inside the, the MacBook charger, there's a 16-bit microcontroller, mm-hmm. which is not something you'd expect to find in a, in a charger. Um, this microcontroller is roughly as powerful as the processor in original Macintoshes. Whoa. <laughs> you know, it's a bit of an apples to oranges comparison, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but still it's, you know, a lot, a lot of processing power just to provide electricity. Yeah. Um, you know, what, what it actually does is before you plug in the, your, um, Apple charger to your, your MacBook, there's very little current on the available through the connector. Mm-hmm. It, it, uh, it detects, um, when you're plugged in. Um, does some handshaking, and then after about a second, it turns on the full power. So this hmm. is this is why you don't get zapped if you're if you just touch the edge of your MagSafe connector or R- something like that. R- right. So if you know somebody licks their connector, they're probably not going to get injured. Uh-huh. Um, if a counterfeit charger, on the other hand, they skip the whole microprocessor. It just always has the power there. <laughs> you know, if you stick a paper clip across the connector, you, you get a big spark out of it. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So there is a safety advantage to having that microcontroller in your charger. And is that does that also operate the uh, the LED uh, light in the end of the MagSafe connector? Strangely enough, the LED is totally separate from the the power supply. Huh. The charger block itself is just providing the power inside the connector. There's a a, a chip that 
um, communicates by the one-wire protocol. Um, it does a few things. It provides data to the computer about what kind of charger it is, how much current it can supply, and it also gets signals from the computer to turn on the, the light to be either you know, red or green. So is the, uh, is the LED powered by a direct connection inside the charger to the DC line, or is it powered through some other, like a, a transformer that's on board the MacBook and then sending the current back? So, so the, the LED and the chip and the connector are powered by the, the power supply itself. Okay. And then there's you know, one, one wire, which is the center pin in the connector, which is the data connection between um, the, the computer and the, and the connector. Hmm. Okay. Uh, maybe we should just take a step back for a second and, and say like, like what, what actually is inside of one of these chargers? I mean, we, we, so we said earlier, like I think most, most people, many people, a measurable number of people know, <laughs> know what a bridge rectifier is. But I mean, there's, there's a long distance between, between a bridge rectifier and, and whatever's inside the charger. So like what, what actually is the... So, so um, you know, most of the chargers follow pretty much the same, the same model. So if you take your iPhone charger, for instance, it starts off with a bridge rectifier that converts the, the AC input voltage into DC. There's a filter capacitor. Then this DC, which is you know, considerably above 120 volts, gets chopped up by um, the switching circuit. And this is a this is a a transformer, but in DC. So so there, there's a there's a high high current transistor that turns this power on and off probably twenty thirty thousand times a second. Hmm. Um, they want to get it the frequency above audible range, so mm -hmm. that you know, unless you're a teenager with great hearing, you're not going to hear <laughs> any noise from your your charger. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And so then these DC pulses get fed into the flyback transformer, which is a tiny transformer inside the charger. Um, on the other side of the transformer, you get out low voltage but high current. Um, there's diode there that you know, make sure the output is DC from this transformer. It gets filtered by capacitors and ductors and turned into nice, nice smooth um, DC power. Nice. Mm. Unless, of course, you get the counterfeit and then they kind of <laughs> go cheap on the filtering and you get really noisy DC power out. Right, right. Which mm -hmm. tends to mess up your touchscreen behavior. Mm -hmm. So huh. if you've ever noticed your phone is not working right when it's plugged into the charger, the touchscreen just goes crazy. Yeah. That's because you've got a cheap charger and it's generating interference. Oh wow! Huh, so, so I have noticed that. So having cheaper counterfeit chargers can actually influence the way that other systems on your phone work uh, in right. non-obvious ways. I guess. Yeah. I've noticed uh, um, this is it's unrelated and it uses. I'm using an authentic uh, Apple charger, but when my MacBook is plugged in and I drag my fingertips across the outside of the case, it has a, a frisson. <laughs> so you, you can get a, a slight tingle there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that's harmless and expected. Okay. Um, there's you know there's a very low leakage current, um, which is can be enough to feel, but it's mm -hmm. it's harmless. They tell me. <laughs> I used to have this couch that I would sit on and. And if I had my headphones like in my ears and I would like push my computer away from me on the couch to like stand up, I would just get zapped right in, right in both of the ears at the same time. Yeah. It was un unpleasant. That I, sounds a little scary. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was experiencing that just the other day recording this podcast. Um, I had forgotten to bring the pair of over-the-ear headphones that I'm wearing now, the conventional ones. And so I was using um, these Bose noise-canceling in-ear earbuds, which have their own battery in them. And the there was some sort of interference between the uh, power supply that was supplying either the recorder or the headphone amplifier that we use. And I was getting this colossal buzz unless I touched any of the exposed metal parts on the, oh, on, the uh, on the recorder, which completely silenced it. Mm -hmm. um, 
anyway, interference, it's really fun. Yeah. But I have noticed that about touch screens. So is there there's some sort of refresh rate at which it's like sampling the location of your finger? So, so yeah, I'm not entirely sure of touchscreen technology, uh, but it's basically measuring very low voltages. And if there's you know spikes of several volts coming in from your charger, that uh -huh. can overwhelm the, if it's know, the a, voltage of the touchscreen. It's trying a capacitive to measure. sensor. If it's a capacitive sensor, then then yeah, it needs to measure those capacitances and screen. And it's just getting flooded yeah. with extra. So, yeah. so there was another thing that you mentioned in the article about um, how properly designed chargers do something to play nicely with the power grid, right? They do some kind of like extra conditioning phase correction or something. Yeah, yeah, power factor correction. So so the the problem with um with a a, a diode bridge is that it pulls the, the peaks off the waveform, the AC waveform and doesn't use the rest of the power which uh, annoys the power company. So mm -hmm. there have been regulations requiring power factor correction in larger power supplies. And what this does is the power supply simulates a nice resistive load like a light bulb by pulling little chunks of power out during the course of the waveform where it pulls more out during the peaks, less out during the low part. Um, but over, overall, it simulates a nice uniform load. Huh. And then these, these chunks of power form the DC that gets fed into the, the chopping circuit as described before the switching power supply circuit. So this is not a feature that is often included in the super cheapy ripoff power supplies? Um, yeah, generally, you know, this is something you'd only see above 75 watt power supplies. And if you buy a super cheapy, they probably leave it out because it's going to cost a couple extra dollars. Mm -hmm. You know, another control circuit, another integrated circuit, another inductor. And they're not getting a, a legitimate UL listing anyway, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's kind of impressive, you know, a cheap charger you get on eBay for for a few dollars, just how much they can cut out of it and how how cheap they can manufacture it. Right, right. There's basically for an Apple charger, Apple has crammed in as many components as they possibly can into this tiny space. Mm -hmm. um, for the the cheap charger, they omit almost all of these components. Sometimes they don't even have a control integrated circuit for the hmm. controlling the switching. Power supply. They just use a you know transistor oscillator and hope for the best. Huh. And the and the consequence of this for the user would be would be what? Um, well, your, your power coming out is you know going to be worse quality. They may say it provides you know, ten watts, but it only provides three watts. Mm -hmm. um, but the worst problem is that they just cut out all the safety features. Hmm. Um, in a in a legit power supply, they have to keep you know. A distance of several millimeters between the high voltage side and the low voltage side. I've used special components for bridging these. In the knockoff power supply, they usually just cut these margins down. There's like half a millimeter keeping you mm -hmm. safe rather than, you know, four or five millimeters. You know, if any drop of moisture or loose bit of solder mm -hmm. bridges this gap, then it know, arcs and it's game yeah, over. Yeah, then you've got, you know, hundreds of volts coming out instead of five volts. <laughs> Right, right. Uh, you know, inside the transformer, you know, these transformers are very small, but the real ones, they're triple insulated. Mm -hmm. um, they've got you know, insulating tape, everything to separate the high voltage wires from the low voltage wires um, in a in a three dollar knockoff charger. You know, they just omit all that. They just use the minimum insulation that it won't blow up immediately. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so you're you know, there's really a safety risk there. So is Apple the only company doing really good high end chargers? Um, I, I would say that you know any company that you know actually has a name and you could sue them if something went wrong. You know their chargers are are decent quality. Uh -huh. um, you know, but you know looking at the difference between you know a, a Windows laptop charger and the Apple laptop charger, Apple has gone sort of this extra distance, mm -hmm. um, probably into the the land of over engineering. <laughs>
But the, the strange thing is Apple seems incapable of building a, a cable that won't break after a couple of years. Huh. Yeah. Um, you know, every time I discuss chargers, you know, lots of people have stories of their cables breaking. You know, I've got a stack of chargers people gave me after the cable broke. Um, so it's you know, this you know, extensive engineering inside and then this, this um, wire that breaks outside. It's you mean the, <laughs> the, the, puzzling. the, the place where the, where the cable comes out of the little charger block? Because you're encouraged to, to, to bend it off, torque it off to the side and wrap it around, right? Well, I've seen breaks you know, anywhere from you know, the, where the, the cable enters the charger to the, the connector to in the middle of the cable. It just seems they like the, you know, flexible look for the cable, making it mm. thin and, huh. and and supple, and it just um, it has that has some drawbacks. Yeah, yeah. Is there a data line going down the length of the low voltage cable attached to the power supply, or um, no? No, that that cable is just power and ground. Okay, so yeah. the so the microcontroller in the power supply is just um, interpreting from the from the power draw, whether it's been connected and is ready to send 15 um, volts. Right. It, it's constantly measuring the, the voltage and the current. And so it can tell if it's if it's connected, if it's shorted, um, if it's overloaded. Um, hmm. You know, if, if it detects a, a short, it will cut off the power entirely and you have to like unplug it and to reset it. Um, you know, it, it can tell if you're connected to a, a computer or you've like you know, it's shorting on something, mm-hmm. you know, a paperclip or something, and will only give the full power for if it detects the proper resistance, mm-hmm. about, mm-hmm. about 30K, that signals it's connected to a, a computer. Huh. But this is entirely separate from the, the communication, the, the serial the connection. At the at the MagSafe yeah. end. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, you're um, working as a software engineer now, but you've done all these magnificent uh, teardowns of hardware and and are clearly very knowledgeable. What, what's your what's your background with respect to hardware? Um, pr- pr- pretty much, I'm unqualified in the hardware area. It's <laughs> it's just something I do for fun. You know, I, you know, ever since a child, I've enjoyed playing around with with electronic circuits and you know, had mm-hmm. the Radio Shack. You know, project kits and things, and mm-hmm. built, built Heath kits. But yeah, my formal training is all in in uh, mathematics and computer science. Oh, okay, okay. In when you do these teardowns, um, you're knowledgeable about a lot of the like trade craft of electronics manufacturing. How did you pick up stuff about you know the the necessary uh, trace uh, distances and you know the proper way to insulate power supplies and stuff like that? Um, that's mostly epic click spirals. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, how how widely available is that stuff? Is that knowledge? Um, I, I think it's um, available for you know anybody who who looks for it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so some of the official standards you have to pay money for. So I go for the summaries rather than. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know, I've also been buying you know old books from you know the 1970s and 80s disca- describing hardware from that era hmm. for some of my investigations into old microprocessor chips and how they work internally. Right, and right. You, you know, you can buy a lot of those books pretty cheap used. <laughs> yeah, the old specifications. Well, cool. That sounds like a, a good time to segue into um, our tools segment, which is where we talk about what tools that we like. So we like to we like to ask guests like. What kind of tools do you like to use? And th- th- this can be anything from your favorite gardening implement to your favorite IDE to anything else, really. Just what what, what kind of tools do you like to use? What's your favorite tools? So, so you know, for programming, I use pretty much standard you know, VI, e- Eclipse, um, not, not Emacs. I, I tried it; it just <laughs> just didn't work for me. <laughs> 
that's but, gonna, but that's I respect good. all the Emacs yeah. users. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of all the things you've said, that's the most yeah, controversial. That's the most controversial thing. In the world. Yeah. Um, as as far as the teardowns, um, you know, that may be a more interesting area of what tools I use. Um, I use Eagle for drawing the schematics. Um, when I'm trying to figure out how a how a circuit actually works, I use the LT Spice simulator. I'll mm-hmm. put you know, build a circuit in that, see see how it works. Um, you know, I find hands-on experimenting that way, you know, helps fill in the gaps in my education mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. I just can't figure out why they would build a circuit this way. Takes out some of the ambiguity of, of trying to mock up something physically. Yeah. For, for writing my blog posts, I, I use um, GIMP for image editing. I use LibreOffice for generating diagrams. Then I use this big pile of, of Python scripts to, to mm. do the formatting and you know, build the footnotes and so forth. So probably not the most efficient way of doing it, but you know, it, it works for me. So, so it's not it's not like a, a WordPress site. I mean, you're you're generating uh, HTML statically that, that then lives statically on the site. Well, I, I generate the HTML with these these scripts, and then I cut and paste it into Blogger. Oh, okay, okay. I, I should probably do a more, you know more <laughs> API based approach there, but you know, cut yeah. and paste works. It works. Yeah. Whose oscilloscope do you use? So, um, for an oscilloscope, I you know at home have the Regal 1052, which is you know inexpensive and gets the job done. And that's a digital oscilloscope. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, at, at work, I have access to this Tektronix oscilloscope that costs much more than my car. <laughs> <laughs> you know, which may say something about my car as well, but right, right, right. Uh, you know, if you have the budget, uh, the, you know, it's a nice oscilloscope. Yeah. Um, you know, but for the stuff I'm doing, you know, the the budget model works fine. I um, was sort of pleased with myself when I started seeing Google ads all over the web for uh, this really high end Tektronics, like six in one logic analyzer oscilloscope Is this the, signal generator. The, the, the is this the MSO? Yeah, I think I've seen those ads. Oh, I want yeah. one of those so much. If anyone from Tectonics is listening, <laughs> we can, send a review very, copy to David. Very happy to do yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, I could do a gnarly. teardown of one of them. Exactly. That'd be awesome. That yeah, would be yeah. really cool. But man, they do the, yeah, they can do the um, frequency domain al- analysis, like layered directly on top of the time domain analysis at the same time. So you can see your waveforms, but also like see the, yeah. So. I've I've done some of that in my charger analysis, so I can you know see just how much you know noise at what frequencies the the bad chargers are generating. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, as as far as tools, um, one interesting tool I got recently is a metallurgical microscope. Really, um, this is what I use for um, reverse engineering chips, um, taking dye photos. Huh. Uh, with with a standard microscope, the light shines from below, which doesn't work at all if you have mm-hmm. something opaque like an integrated circuit. Mm-hmm. Um, the metallurgical microscope, instead, it shines the light from above down through the lens, so huh. so it's illuminated from above. Oh, and right. you get a nicely um, nice reflective, nice reflective um, view. The chip is well illuminated. Yeah, you know, yeah I can yeah. get nice um, pictures with the USB camera. And then and then trace over them in something later and start to analyze the dye. Um, yeah. So I've been you know looking at a a few chips like a five 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 timer. I wrote up a blog post on how those work internally. I read read uh, that too. Yeah, you know, there's a lot. Cool. A lot of people do die photos, but what I'm trying to do is fill in that um, gap between this is a pretty picture, but I have no idea how it works. Right, right, right. I'm getting to understanding. Oh, these are how these components all fit together. It's also, interpretation. It's a kind of archaeology in itself. Also, VLSI stuff is so cool. Like, I don't know. I mean, I. I, I when I was in high school, I had an internship doing like mask design grunt work at at HP, and spent a lot of time living in that world for a couple summers. And it's like so cool because like the patterns when you just look at the way that dyes are, 
are just amazing and I think aesthetically pleasing to look at. But then once you start to understand what's actually going on there and you see it's this tiny little machine with with billions of parts inside of it that are all working together like a little clockwork, it's just like, yeah, it's great. It, it's an amazing feeling when you can suddenly start understanding how pieces of this chip are actually doing computation. Mm -hmm. It's not just magically interpreting instructions, but you can understand how the data is moving here here and there, how the ALU is actually adding things together. So this is actually a question relevant to sort of tools. Um, uh, on this podcast, we talk with a lot of people who, you know, remark on uh, the way that it's getting easier and easier to engage with hardware. And a big part of that is that more of the hardware development process is becoming a software development process, really. You're, you know, more and more things have some sort of general purpose microcontroller in them, and then you program functionality in with a scripting language. And it's much easier than, you know, developing a circuit to, to do it yourself or doing something in an analog way. Um, in, the, in the kinds of, you know, reverse engineering and analysis and electronics enthusiasm that, that you're doing, has that changed at all? Or, or are you basically, uh, you know, looking at the stuff the same way that uh, someone could have 20 years ago? Well, that's a good question. Um, when I look at microprocessors, I'm, I'm looking at ones from the, you know, the 1970s where they're simple enough to actually be able to trace through and understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. You know, modern microprocessors are just so insanely complex, you know, there's just no hope of, of trying to figure out what's going on, even if you could, you know, ha have a microscope powerful enough to to see right, the, right. to see the transistors. Yeah, when I <laughs> when I was at HP and Intel working on the Titanium II, the, <laughs> the Titanic, <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> uh, one of my pastimes during lunch when I needed a break would be to load up the top level block of the core, and then just like this is before Google Maps, and you could do this in Google Maps, but I used to just load up the top level block of the core, just like spend like five to 10 minutes just like zooming down into it until I arrived at a, until I arrived at a transistor. Wow. That must've been an incredible experience. Yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> so do you think anybody there actually understood how the whole chip worked or did people each have their own area of expertise? I think, I don't know. It was, I mean, I didn't know that much about actually what the engineering process was, was like at the time. I mean, I took a special um, class at my high school because they realized like we could, you know, there's, there's engineering work, which is boring for engineers, but exciting for high school kids who like things about uh, computers. So, so I learned kind of the, the basic ways of how PFETs, NFETs, digital logic, all that other stuff worked. And then the second half of the semester was they let us have a, a VNC uh, session into their internal design tools and and like it would be like this week's lab is layout an XOR gate and whoever has the most robust design gets extra credit. So point being I you know I was like 17 or something at the time so I didn't think that big about it. I was like okay I know what transistors are and, and I know the rules about how close these colored rectangles can be close to the other colored rectangles and kind of had a vague idea of how that worked in manufacturing but I did not have a good sense of of how distributed it was. It did strike me that this was the first time I really understood that there are these huge undertakings that are really planned by just like a few people. And then it takes this army of, of implementers to, to implement. So, I mean, I, I think somebody understands the top level block diagram, but I don't know if there was anybody who could just hold in their head every single tiny detail about it. Well, well that, that's the interesting thing about some of these old processors like the 6502, where it was just you know, a small handful of people who were designing it, um, they would draw it out by hand. They would, you know, literally cut the circuits into this plastic film called ruby lift that they would lay out on a big table. Mm -hmm. and, and they were like making individual transistors by cutting with an exacto knife. You, you raise a really good question though. And I think uh, I, I've heard people uh, express concern that no one understands any microprocessor, any individual fully. microprocessor yeah. now fully. 
but it's it's a similar um but abstraction is like why we have modern technology like right we... right and and it's uh it's it's something that you see all over the place whenever any field gets uh too sophisticated for any individual to understand the whole thing you know there, there's mm-hmm. no engineer at boeing who knows exactly where everything is in a in an airliner in a, in a 737 or something mm-hmm. it's just too complex and they they overcame this uh in the mid 20th century with like early um PLM software and, and and CAD software and stuff and figured out how to break it apart into a lot of problems and modularize it. And yeah. even, even uh, you know, if you think about like academic science uh, in, uh, you know, Isaac Newton probably uh, understood personally a considerable portion of everything that was known about physics at that, at that time. Right. And now there's, there's no one who can, can fully it's a good that. way to learn new things, I think. I mean, being, you know, analyzing a system that you can fully hold in your head. Like I, w- I used to be really into working on my moped. I used to have a, a Pook moped with an E50 engine on it, which is just a super simple two-stroke engine. And it has fewer than 30 moving parts inside of it. So once you take it apart and put it back together again, you can understand, you can hold in your head everything that's going on with it. And then you kind of start to make other connections. Like, you know, you're writing it, it's making a weird sound or like it feels laggy mm-hmm. in a certain way. And you can actually kind of intuitively begin to feel and understand like what parts of the mechanism might be causing it to do something like that. And that's, it helped my understanding of mechanics and engines a whole lot, like working on something. So, I mean, that's why I liked reading your article about the 555 timer and, you know, even the 6502, although that the 6502 one is pushing pushing my buffer space, but, but, <laughs> but like stuff like that is really cool. Cause you know, you, there's a thing that you understand like a motorcycle or a timer IC or something like that, but you can look inside of it and, and understand like how the whole thing is working at the same time. Our next segment is click spiral. And this is a thing we do on every episode where everyone uh, brings in a thing that's been occupying him or her uh, on, on the internet, little rabbit holes, Wikipedia holes. What are your browser tabs full of? Yeah. That's the core question. Here. Um, so if, if you, the listener, would like to send in a click spiral to absorb David and me and all of our other listeners for a little while, just email hardware at O'Reilly.com and we'll talk about it on a future episode of the podcast. So, uh, David, what's your click spiral this week? Um, been interested in watching videos on YouTube of high voltage uh, linemen, uh, hmm. these guys who go and, and fix really, really high voltage, like 800,000 volt transmission lines. And there's it's, it's incredibly dangerous, as you can imagine, because if you ground yourself wrong, if you, you don't get electrocuted, you just get vaporized. Uh-huh. Um, and so, but they have to service these things without completely taking it apart. So there's there's a number of ways of doing it. Sometimes you climb up to it and tether it on and ground yourself properly. And you can see these videos of people getting their hands close to the lines and just huge arcing. Sometimes they, they service them from helicopters what? in order to keep the, the grounding state. Yeah, I saw a helicopter um, by the San Mateo Bridge with someone apparently working on the lines there. It was wow. pretty bizarre. Oh, yeah. Could you see any of the arcs or anything? Um, or was he wearing this little spacesuit? No, I couldn't see that closely since we're just driving past. But it looked like a job I wouldn't want to have. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's well, also cool is that um is they use a special so they use these special kind of cameras called corona cameras to identify like loose bolts and things that have problems. And it's a camera that you can point at something and, and because like arcing generates UV light, they use a combination of UV invisible light so you can like look at something and see where the problem is. So, I thought but, uh, that was cool. I thought we learned from um, the hunt for Red October when Alec Baldwin is dropped onto a, a, a Navy ship from a helicopter that uh, the, the rotors on helicopters 
um, build up an enormous static charge. But I think that's only if you, yeah. But it, that's only that's only a problem if you give the charge somewhere to go. I think, right? I would think. I would, our, th- I would think that if you're if you're like, isn't heli- the line man attached to the helicopter and then and then in but some way attached to the, out. Yeah. I guess they just have to figure out how to make sure that the that they only touch insulators on the no, just that the gra- that the that the grounding state of the of the dude and the helicopter and the lines are all at the same thing. So hmm. as long as you don't become a conduit for electricity, doesn't yeah? Because I mean, voltage is about a difference between places of charge. So there could be huge amounts of charge, but as long as you're not like bridging between where lots of charge is and where lots of yeah, charge yeah. isn't, then then you'll probably be okay. Um, wh- why can't they uh, shut down the 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 line, take the line off line, so to speak. <laughs> uh, I do not know. I did not get that far into it. But I mean, I would imagine, I mean, these these, these transmission lines are, you know, the supply, supplying lines. power. Yeah, supplying power for huge amounts of infrastructure. So well, you well, tighten I, a bolt. But do you know? Yeah. Well, well, I read about one PG&E outage where they were working on the line. So they shut down the line, grounded it. Um, this was main line going into one of the main lines going into San Francisco. Then when they were done, they powered up the line, but forgot to remove the grounding. <laughs> so they basically grounded the entire San Francisco power oh, power grid. <laughs> and so by the time you know circuit breakers started to trip, they'd like taken down the whole city, and it took them uh-huh. about a day to get it all straightened out and back on oh, line wow. again. So uh, faster, faster feedback if you do something wrong when the line is live. Yeah, yeah I would think so. Yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. But yeah, we should put up some of these videos on the show notes because they're pretty they're pretty crazy. Um, if you're into high voltage and, and people wearing shiny suits and, and helicopters and dangerous maneuvers having to do with engineering and technical things. So anyway, John, what is your what is your click spiral? Well, there have been a couple of interesting um, cases of, of imagery and um, computer vision in archaeology recently. One is uh, the discovery of a, of a new possible Viking landing site in Newfoundland, much further south than any uh, Viking, you know, settlement previously discovered in North America, and it was discovered by way of a, um, a, a satellite image taken somewhere in the infrared range, combined with uh, computer vision software that looked for anomalous shapes in the ground and things that were likely to be man-made. And then the other one that struck me right around the same time is that uh, there's an investigation going on in Egypt in which it has been speculated that there is a doorway in the back of King Tut's tomb that's been filled in and that there might be the tomb of Queen Nefertiti behind it. And this is, of course, uh, just sensational. And yes. uh, so it's going to be investigated first with with a variety of like imaging techniques. And it's already kind of been investigated with other imaging techniques, but they're really sort of breaking out the 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 big guns for it. So does the does the curse apply if you're only looking into the tomb using <laughs> using remote viewing tools or does that only happen if you like break, break a seal or like utter some kind of <laughs> arcane phrase or or something like that? I think it applies to your computer. <laughs> it applies to your Yeah, your your um your your sound blaster pro burns out. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think they just need to bring in Harrison Ford with a hammer and yeah. you know, he can go, go Indiana Jones on it and break his way through. Right, right. Exactly. That's the only way it'll actually be confirmed. He's real good at dodging poison darts. Yeah. And stuff like that. I always wondered, like, who who designs those systems? 
you know, like when you're like building it and you're, you're living in ancient times and you really need to like, you really need to like make sure that, that someone's going to get real messed up if they, uh-huh. if they, if they break into the tomb of your ruler, like they must've spent a, the whole lot of time, like, okay, in this hallways, we're going to, we're going to position these, these dart portholes at like spacing of like 10, 10 inches each. And we're going to look, you know, I mean, that's a lot of, you'd have to hire a professional booby trappist. <laughs> but, but I want to know who does the QA on that. Yeah. Oh, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Um, Anyway, it's uh, it makes me the the whole thing, especially the the um, especially the Norse settlement in um, Canada and the way that it was discovered, sort of makes me wonder if we're coming to the end of discovery, finding like new it, things, yeah, finding yeah. new things. It, we're we're eventually going to have on this planet anyway, exquisite yeah. imagery of practically everything all the time, combined with just about infinite computing power to look for anomalies mm-hmm. and sort of search things out. Um, it's remarkable that each of these sites is only being sort of discovered now. They're they're not like in unknown, you know, uninhabited areas. They're in, in the case of Canada, a, a developed country that's uh, mapped itself perfectly well. And in the case of Egypt, a, a country that has put a lot of resources into archaeology and especially here, you know, the most famous of all the, of all the tombs. Mm-hmm. So Ken, what, what's been in your browser tabs recently? Well, I've been doing a bunch of work with the Computer History Museum in Mountain View lately. I'm using one of their old punch card computers. Um, and so I've written code to generate Mandelbrot fractals and mine bitcoins on this this old mainframe. Whoa. Um, <laughs> have, so, you, have, uh, you got, have you got one yet? Um, unfortunately, <laughs> it take till the end of the universe for it to actually find one. So it's, it's not as profitable as you might hope. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, but anyway, this led me into a click spiral of the invention of the punch card. Um, where did that come from? And it, it turns out that um, back, back in the 1800s, the U.S. had um, somewhat larger money than they did now, mm-hmm. about 30% larger. Here I can hold one up for the people on the podcast. <laughs> oh, um, you, mean the, you, you weren't like misspeaking and saying the U.S. had more money. You're actually saying the money itself was larger. Yes, the physically, physically <laughs> larger. And, and so um, when, they, when, when Hollerith decided to use punch cards for the census, he decided to make it the same size as, a, as the money because then he could use the same bins and everything. Huh. Um, oh. Then in, in the 1920s, um, IBM decided that these, these punch cards with 45 columns weren't big enough, so they wanted to, wanted to um, enlarge it. Um, they did some research. They came up with a couple of plans. One was uh, instead of having... Um, 45 columns of digits they could put binary and fit twice as much information mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but they decided to just make the holes rectangular squeeze more in, in there and have 80 column cards huh so that's how they ended up with the 80 column punch card and and, and 80 why? 80 uh, digit line limits in yeah. fortran right yes this is, is that why terminals are now or well yes you you've oh. like predicted where this oh, click sorry. spiral is <laughs> sorry <going. laughs> oh, sorry sorry so um so so yeah then you know in the 70s when they started building um CRT terminals um, the big use was for people to enter punch card data so they could edit it on the terminal and then and then send it to IBM to their the mainframe. Mm-hmm. And so they had 80-column terminals. This went to like 80-column, you know, X-term windows in your, in your computer. Mm-hmm. And now people have 80-column line length for... <laughs> <laughs> for for all their their coding standards, which, uh-huh, which uh-huh. seems just crazy when it dates back to like how many holes could you fit on an obsolete piece of money? Right, right, yeah. right. <laughs> and so it, you know, people say the technology industry moves so fast, but yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. A lot of things, you know, when you're writing your your Java code and ending your lines at eighty columns, it dates uh-huh. back to like you know almost a hundred years ago. Right, right, right. That, that Backward constrain. compatibility, a very long way. And you know, things could have turned out totally differently. Um, you know, a competitor had 90-column cards. Um, 
Hmm. You know, Remington Rand, which turned into um, Univac and then now Unisys. Um, later, IBM came up with 96 column cards in the 70s. So mm -hmm. if, if these had caught on, you know, your coding standards would <laughs> now be you know, 90 columns or 96 columns. Right, right, right. Maybe we would have had the the terminals that like sat horizontally instead of the slightly the more like vertical orientation. Yeah, that that or, could have happened too. Wide screens earlier. Yeah. So what is it like working with punch cards? Yeah. So um, well, it's kind of an interesting process. Um, I'm using the IBM 1401, which is this um, business machine. Um, one interesting thing about old machines is that it's just a totally different world of computing. Things you take for granted, like bytes. Uh -huh. It's a six-bit machine. Oh. It has six-bit characters. <laughs> it's a decimal machine. So when it has 4K of memory, that's 4,000 characters of memory, not 4,096. <laughs> huh. um, it has arbitrary length fields. Um, so if you want to you know, multiply 2,000-digit numbers, it's just as easy as multiplying two-digit numbers. Uh -huh. Of uh -huh. course, it takes literally a minute. The yeah. lights really uh -huh. flash while it's multiplying 2,000-digit <laughs> numbers. Right, I, right, I, right. I tried this. How? So anyway, the process is I use a simulator called Rope on a mm -hmm. PC. I, I write assembly code, get it working. And then um, one of the guys at the Computer History Museum has hooked up a, a USB relay box um, to a, a key punch. Mm -hmm. So you can just stick a flash drive into a PC and the key punch will automatically punch punch these cards. It takes a oh few seconds God. for punching each cards. Uh -huh. You know, you get a your stack of 100 cards to make up your program. Um, you go over to the computer, you hit the power button. There's a you know impressive clunking of relays as it powers up like within a second. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, there's no operating system on the machine. So you know once once you hit the power button, you're ready to go. Wow. You know, it's amazing how far technology has gone the wrong direction, you know, having to wait a minute while your computer right, reads. Right, right. Um you, you you put this deck of cards in the in the card reader, you hit the load button and you have card, like a little hopper that it yeah, so it has this, yeah. this hopper where you stack up the cards. Once you hit the button, the cards fly through the card reader at like 10 cards a second, uh -huh, which, which uh -huh. is you know, surprisingly fast for you know, moving these mechanical cards through the machine. Right, right, right. Um, that loads it into the computer. Um, they have the expansion box, so you've got a whopping 16K of memory. <laughs> the expansion box. Yes, yeah, so there's yeah. this box. It's the size of a dishwasher. It probably cost uh, like $100,000 or something like uh, that. So I, 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 I like did another click spiral there. <laughs> it, it cost $25,000 at the time, which wow. was the same price as a house in San Francisco. Oh, my God. You, you, could, you could get a nice house for the same price as this yeah, 12K yeah, yeah. expansion box. And it's a solid state memory? Um, no, this is core memory. Oh, little, okay. little tiny, you know, rings of, of metal that are magnetized one way or the other with yeah, wires yeah. going through them. Wow. So it's just a whole bunch of like electromechanical, not not, not electromechanical, but but um, physical magnetic cores. Yes. You can, one like, for each bit. You can actually look and see each bit and wow. the wires that go through them. Does core <laughs> memory have to be powered to keep its state? Well, that's the cool thing because it's magnetized. You turn the computer off, you turn it back on, your program is still there. You uh -huh. can just start running right where you left off if you want. Wow. So it's a it's a very different world of, of computing. Um, what year is the is the computer you're working on from? So um, this computer was introduced in 1959. The one I'm using, I think, is the 1962 model. Okay. And one interesting thing is it's transistorized, but not silicon transistors, germanium transistors. <laughs> it has oh, wow. a couple thousand cards, each with a few transistors on it. Uh -huh. all plugged in. And so you, know, you can look and say, this transistor is what is adding these two numbers. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And so actually, I helped them track down a problem with the core memory, figured out which card was the bad card. You, know, you pull out the bad card, plug in a good card, uh -huh. and uh -huh. you're, you're back in business. 
Wow. They, they did a really good job of building these computers to be maintainable. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You, know, you can just open it up and work on it while the power is still on, hook no up kidding. oscilloscopes to you know, different different points, see why it's malfunctioning. Uh-huh. Um, they've got a bunch of retired IBM engineers who are keeping these machines working. So if you're ever in Mountain View, you know, stop by the Computer History Museum when they're doing a demo and you can you can see yeah. this, this machine in action. That's pretty cool. So you, you said you're, you're programming it in assembly. Um, what would it have been programmed in in the early 60s? So they, they used assembly. Um, they also had um, a Fortran compiler. Mm-hmm. It, it did something like 83 passes over the program to <laughs> compile it. So it was Wow. You know, not the not the zippiest compiler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I believe they had COBOL running on it. They had a report program generator language for you know processing data and generating reports. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I'm I'm stuck with the assembly language. Wow. Well, that's the end of the click spiral segment for this week. If you, the listener, would like to send in a click spiral and have us talk about it on a future episode of the podcast, just email hardware at o'reilly.com. Ken Sheriff, it's been a pleasure having you on. If listeners want to find you on the internet and read some of these uh, incredible teardowns. Where do they look? So my website is righto.com, R-I-G-H-T-O.com. And I get you know, articles there every few weeks as time allows. So stop by. Well, thank you so much, Ken. Well, thank you so much for having me on your show. Yeah, thanks, Ken. That's great. For links and other information related to this week's episode, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware. And send your questions and comments to hardware at O'Reilly.com. If you enjoyed the program, make sure you've subscribed on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting platform. And if you really enjoyed it, consider leaving us a review. Until next time, I'm David Crane. And I'm John Bruner. <laughs>